Hello, it's Jack Tudor here from Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak to experimental musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Zachary James Watkins, a musician based out of Oakland. He's member of Black Spirituals, an improvisatory duo featuring Marshall Trammell on percussion, Zachary James Watkins on electronics and guitar, harmonically treated guitar, I should say. The duo are currently on hiatus at the moment, and Zachary's attention is turned to collaborations elsewhere and solo music, including, on January 19th, a world premiere of a piece of his for string quartet, played by the Kronos Quartet at Carnegie Hall in New York, no less. So if you are in the area and able to go to that, I would thoroughly recommend it. I mean, listening to Zachary talk about it in this discussion made me wish that I could go. But I love talking to Zachary about sound. I love hearing him talk about sound. I think he has a really unique relationship with it, which is reflected in the music that he makes as well. Such a sensitivity to space and harmonics and the way those two interrelate to improvisation as well and energy flow and so it was really nice to have this discussion we've been speaking for a few years now but never had a verbal conversation black spirituals whilst they are on hiatus have one more record coming out from this phase of the band it's called black axis black axes to be released on siege records in the near future I'd thoroughly recommend checking out everything that they've done up till this point. And in fact, if you go to blackspirituals.com, you can find out more. Zachary has some music of his own as well up at zacharyjameswatkins.bandcamp.com. And obviously, you can head over to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for all the notes on this show and all the picks that Zachary went for. And also you can search for an interview I did with Black Spirituals from 2014, I think, on the back of their record of Deconstruction, which I enjoyed so much. And again, you can get another taster of Zachary and Marshall. In fact, both of them have such a wonderful way of articulating sound. A taster of them talking about the experience of creating music together and their own unique perspectives on it. So... Please enjoy this conversation with Zachary. There's some noise in the background. It seems that there was some construction work taking place on on Zachary's side, but you can hear everything clearly enough. It's a little bit noisier in the intro, but it clears up quickly. Without further delay, Zachary James Watkins on Crucial Listening. Last time we, I mean, properly spoke, I know that you um, you had a lot on by the sounds of it. How's everything going? Thank you for asking, dog. And um, let me think about this out loud with you. How am I doing? Well, I'm doing good. I'm looking at a gray sky, which we are welcoming because we need some rain here. Um, the weather's starting to get a little cooler. Summer is beautiful in Oakland, and it was relentless. Every day was gorgeous. So we're like, <laughs> give me something else. And uh, today it's great. So thank you. And um, my room is filled with gear. Okay, so I have a station for my recording and editing of sounds. And to my right, I have a kind of a dresser that has all of my compositions that I've written. And, and, and to the left is my record player, tape player, one of the better ones, a Tascam 112. 
and um, all my records underneath all of this, and then to my left is my tax shit, and then behind <laughs> me is a, is a, a dress, like a desk where I'm writing. So my room is a, a room and a studio. And this is where I've been for about three, four months now. Because I've had a lot of really op great opportunities, so I've needed to be here a lot. And so I guess how I'm doing is I'm filling a lot of the space with activity, with a lot of project, a lot of thinking, a lot of music. Um, black spirituals broke up. And that was a big part of my life. So I kind of, you know, experienced and I'm experiencing some form of depression, you know, it's like a breakup. So I think how I'm doing is, is really a dynamic space of feeling active, feeling kind of worthless, feeling worthy, feeling a lot of reflection because it's been a, a, run, a wonderful ride these 37 years and man, still in Oakland, a lot of people have to, having to leave, you know? This is a very expensive place to be. So, I don't know, Jack, I don't know how to answer your question. How am I doing? One of your emails recently mentioned the fact that you've got a lot on at the moment. Uh, in terms of collaborative work and solo work, it sounds like a really productive period for you right now. What is it that's currently occupying your days from a sonic-centric perspective? What are you working on right now? Mm, what am I working on today? I just finished a string quartet for the Kronos. Oh, yeah. And that will be premiered on January 19th at Carnegie Hall. So as I say that, I'm kind of shaking my hands and I kind of... Because that is the biggest thing for me, you know, that's huge. Um, I feel like the piece is very, very strong. I think it has a lot of potential and I know where I need to fix it. So that's kind of where I'm at right now with that, is seeing it through the the frame of having given it to the people and then looking at it like, uh-oh, you just gave this thing away. Is it the right thing? And so now I'm seeing it differently and I actually see where I can fix it and make it better. So I'm actually happy about that. Um, in my room, you know, as I had explained um, prior to, you know, this question, um, my, my room is also my studio. So I have a, a Poly 800, you know, synthesizer and a drum machine that I'm constantly, you know, recording um, all the time. And they kind of are just... I've always thought of the, the rhythmic sequencing side of my life as being... Um, as playing a role more than being something for others to have. I feel like it's a place for me to to let, let go and let loose in ways that I might not otherwise. So it always balances out my, my work that I share more publicly. And um, so I'm always re sequencing, making beats, and then lastly, um, working at a studio called Santo Recording. And so I'm recording other bands right now a lot. And being in studios with other people is such a you know powerful experience. And um, getting to play around with ideas that certainly would never kind of think of for myself. And um, yeah, so a lot of um, production at the moment, really fruitful time. Yeah. Great. Um, I want to just go back to that Kronos Quartet um, piece that you've done. Maybe I shouldn't dwell on it too much if it gives you the shakes, but I wanted to ask, as someone who's so... You're so attuned from what I can see to the space in which your music exists and 
both I guess literally and also with some poetic bent as well the spaces in which it resonates and I'd love to know firstly how that consideration has played into the writing of this piece but also as well how you contemplate the translation of actually making that music within your bedroom within you know the most intimate environment imaginable and that eventually being funneled out into Carnegie Hall I know huh Jack good question ooh <laughs> <sighs> Man, let me think about this. Um, so what I think I hear you asking me is there is an intimacy in the space where I create. It's my room. It's my bedroom. I also talk about this intimacy of resonance and the, the experience of this resonant um, energy, resonant energy. And each of our experience with that individually, then taking um, those 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 ideas and placing them into, say, a, a very acclaimed venue called Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you this: it's going to be weird. It's going to be weird. <laughs> it's a very weird piece. Um, you're 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 hearing um, the bedroom of a mid thirties mixed you know, raced human being, happens to be male, and you're going to hear uh, a story of, of you know, insecurity, you're going to hear a story of strength, of sadness, of, of fun, it's a real dynamic thing, and you're right, every day I come home, and I sit down at it, I look at it, I make decisions, I choose things, and they are reflecting who I am that moment. Yeah, this is dynamic work. You're hearing a human being. And I wish, you know, I mean, I wish that it is those things I just said. I hope that it is those things. I really don't know. But I'm doing those things, and um, I hope that they, that it infuses the music with a, with that that moment of me absolutely that's I guess this is the first time I really thought of it that way so thank you for asking me that question um, I do think that this, uh, I, I resonate with people's stories uh, doesn't matter what the music sounds like it can be anything I think that I listen to pretty much anything and I do look for the story so I hear a story and, uh, and pretty much everything, you know. As as well as your um, project Sole, there's a Black Spirituals record that's due out soon, uh, the final one. What can you tell me about that in terms of how it continues the journey that you guys have made up until this point? Um, and also... I mean, now I guess it's framed as an, a, a conclusive statement. Does that change your relationship with it at all? That record is um, about four or five years in the making. And it started with... Uh, let's think about this. This is a special, special record for all of us. Um, we did small tours usually like four or five dates along the west coast a couple times um, early on and one of those times I had connected with you know an older friend acquaintance from when I used to live in Seattle his name is Randall Dunn his partner was closer to me actually you know Mel amazing engineers they had this famous house in West Seattle called the Purple House and in their basement they built a studio and you would go there and you would mix you could track you know there was just a great team it was amazing and um, Mel became a close friend Randall was kind of in the shadows a little more and um, but I got to know him as well and long story short Years later, I know that um, Marshall and I are going to be playing a show in Seattle, and I and I hit up Randall, 
and he's available. He's like, yeah, come record at Avast, the studio I work at. And Avast is famous. I think they recorded some big records. Gorgeous room. Um, and he's like, yeah, come on out, give you two days on the house. As far as my fee, but you know, um, you have to pay the studio still. I was like, come on, dude, you don't, no way. <laughs> no way are you gonna give Marshall and I two days for the price of the studio but not pay you. I think he even bought us lunch one time too. So, you know, very, 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 very generous. And I remember we were in Albuquerque playing with our friends. Uh, post-commodity, Raven. Powerful artists, you need to connect with them. In fact, <laughs> remember that. I will. Um, anywho. <laughs> um, and we drove overnight to Seattle from Albuquerque, and we stopped in Salt Lake City for an hour or so because it was it was like a 10-hour drive already and we needed to stop and but Marshall's close friend from his um, lusty lady days he helped unionize the um, workers there a co-worker now lived with his his mom in um, in Salt Lake and so we visited them and they made us coffee and gave us a prayer before driving on into the night through the thunder clouds and long story short we made it to Seattle this is three four years ago we record for two days with Mel, uh, with Randall and it was at that recording that we met the band Earth and that's what led to us going on tour with them by the way so that 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 early recording session was really really important so two songs of that session of those two days only two songs did we choose of 20 hours of recording um, are going on this new record put out by Siege and then um, the other three sides are post Earth Tour I, put, I booked us in our, our local studio with Andy Oswald great great engineer young, young kid who's recording just everybody right now and, it's, and they're all great so you're going to connect with him soon we recorded ex like a week after we came back from Earth tour, so we got you know a representation of what we sounded like on that tour, and then um, we did one more session at a local studio. It's a, it's a college, so it's a little more um, bland, but the sounds are great. With our good friend Norman, the Norman Conquest is what he calls himself, and I think it has some kind of English folklore to it. Wow. Um, <laughs> But, uh, okay, so, long story short, this record is two LPs, four sides, three separate times of the black spirituals, and they put them all together. And so it's, um, it's a great way to kind of take a break with the work, with the work that we're doing, because um, it really does capture a nice breath of what we've done. It all sounds the same, <laughs> but, it, but it's still four years of work, though. Wow. Well, we should talk about some records. You kindly uh, put together a list of three important albums, and I've had a lot of fun today going between them. And there's a lot of juxtapositions there have been quite interesting. But um, one question that I like to ask my guests when they come on is the process by which you considered a record important. I know this word can have so many different meanings for people and it's completely different for so many people why a record resonates and why they were considered it to be important to them. But... How did you consider the term important when it came to coming up with this list of three albums? Well, I, I think on a, a number of uh, layers lately, uh, a lot of the layers are about knowing and understanding for myself what kind of symbology or symbolism I, I 
inherently will teach people by being of focus or on focus, on focus, being focused on. Uh, so here I am being asked, what three records do I like? And so I have a, a kind of a, a privilege and a power in this moment. So what three records do I like? Well, I want it to be black. I want it to be queer. I want it to be, you know, strong women. Um, those are the first things I think, you know, hmm. literally. That was the first shit I thought about. I didn't even think about the music. And then I, st and then I take a break, then I take a step back, and take a deep breath, and I think, okay, now really though, what is the music that hit you? And it turned out to be those things, you know? Um, you know, it is stronger male kind of activity in my collection, um, for sure, but believe me, it's not, it's, it's, it's really quite, you know, open, but the three records I did choose, though, um, are truthfully, the, like, the ones that I can say hit me real hard. Um, and two of them are from my father's collection that I was able to like, kind of sneak with me when I moved out of the house at 18. <laughs> and have been with me and uh, very important to me since then. Um, and then the third being of importance because it really sh shifted how I thought about um, time and, and harmonics and tunings and treating um, notation. And so kind of the, the notation side of my life. So being honest, the first things were like, okay, what would I like to symbolize and represent? And then the second was just like really sinking into that question of, well, what did really move me growing up or in my memory? Um, and I was hoping that those two would align. And they somewhat did, yeah, somewhat did. Mm. A little heavy on the mail, but, you know. Well, thank you for given the question such consideration it's so nice to hear that there's numerous layers of time going into your your process of picking out these albums by all means i'll let you pick the first one um if you could tell me the name of the the record and also just a little bit about why it's important to you as well okay okay jay and dub it is all red with black, huge black, just mm, letters. I mean, I didn't even know the name of the um, font, but uh, very simple. Um, out on um, Mongo, 1980. Ooh, that's the year I was born. I like it. Okay. <laughs> so Linton Queasy Johnson. Wow, this record is very important to me. Um, we are. It's 1986. We're waking up at 5 a.m. and we're loading the, the van to go on our annual trip to Junction, Texas for a month where my parents teach art to college students in this beautiful oasis in the middle of Texas. And we would put on a record every, and during that morning ritual of waking up early and loading the, the van and uh, this would be one of them. So I remember listening to this pretty much my whole life, and it was critical that I took it when I moved home, um, to Seattle at 19. Um, this is a dub version of a, a regular, you know, just a good, good reggae album that I also own, and it's fun to play them together on the turntables. Kind of, for me, this is like a what made me realize that your country, England, produces some of the best producers there are. I don't know what it is, man. You, you guys just totally get it. And um, so LKJ and Dub is like the, the beginning of me getting into um, real deep electronic music. Because this, I hear the beginnings of dubstep. I hear the beginnings of drum and bass. I hear the beginnings of a lot of hip hop that we love. Because he's kind of, you know, he's rapping really over these. <clears throat> and um, the production, though, the the drums and the way he dubs, 
just really powerful music and um, one of my favorites I will listen to this forever and um, I did get to see him play live once at Bumbershoot in Seattle maybe in the early 2000s and I ran up to the gate there was a gate where he was uh, behind and he got up on some kind of ladder and just like said hi to the fans and we ran up to him and shook his hand and shit and really beautiful human being so I got I got his transmission for sure um, so LKJ powerful is it a record that you still listen to now yeah what does that listening look like for you I'm I maybe I should elaborate on that question I, I guess with these kind of important records particularly when they run so deep there's not always uh, necessity to even listen to some of them I find because they're so embedded in in life and memory but um what's the listening experience like now as someone who's 37 what's that like for you? yeah right um it's man you you t- you're touching onto something here cuz it really did look like the first time i i get transfixed and i stop and i bob i kind of bounce it's a dance of some sort i mean maybe you wouldn't think of it as a dance but it's it's me attempting to dance mm-hmm. and i just stop and i dance mm. so you mentioned as well that you've also owned the original reggae version of this as well from yeah. which these tracks are derived do you have a i mean i guess it's difficult to separate the the impact that life and memory has had on your perception of these records but do you have a sonic preference between the two albums the original versions and those in dub i mean yeah i prefer the dub version um because of the the history with it I'm looking for the uh, the original because I think it should be here. And it's not. Um, gosh, where did I find the original? I feel like I was in England, maybe. Wow. No, I probably didn't. Um, we went to Brixton our last trip, and we hung out at a awesome little reggae cellar, whatever you call it. She was killing it, man. Um, and she was just playing all these white labels, seven inches from her friends. She's like, yeah, he's down the street right now. This is a new track. Oh, made me so happy. (laughs) Um, let's see. Yeah, I, I do. I love both of them. And that's what I'm saying is like, if you have turntables, then to play the dub version at the same time as the original and, and kind of match the rhythms. You're in for a good hang. You're in for a real fun hang. I mean, I I did some, not some simultaneous play, but some mm-hmm. very quick flitting back and forth for comparison, and that was wonderful with a pair of nice headphones. Just the sense that almost on the dub versions that the middle had been. And I don't mean in an equalization sense, but the middle, as I see it in stereo space, had been scooped out and just re- retained as this reverb chamber. It's really wonderful. And it's particularly because the manipulation of echoes as well is so playful from what I hear. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a good record to try to imitate or borrow from, you know? Do you feel like you have? Absolutely. That's that's what I've been trying to do since I could. Yeah. The form of dub that I like to play with is always influenced by these these early records that I listen to. Um, a Swad is another one from England too. Um, this is an English form of reggae. Linton and and um, and a few others that I love. <clears throat> Just really understanding how to be creative in the studio and using dub and amazing sounding delays and reverb in in a musical way uh, performing it in the mix down is uh, something that these these people teach us is how to play the studio like an instrument yeah so they're big big influences 
And if I could have your second record, Zachary, that would be great. Okay. Um, I'm choosing Sun Ra, Atlantis. I have the record in front of me. And this is also another record I, I, I stole from my father when I moved to Seattle in 99. Um, this record it was always like um, haunting me because it, it always captured my attention because it, the uh, cover is so gorgeous. Mm, what a beautiful... I mean, I'd just sit and look at the cover and just get lost in this cartoon imagery, you know? And then the back picture is just beautiful. It's just this extremely powerful human being named Sun Ra um, playing his, his synth. Um, I couldn't understand the record when I first heard it at whatever age, maybe 13, 14. It was, it was too out. And so it was haunting me. It was like, okay, you obviously aren't ready for this yet. But someday you will be. And I kept it, I kept it, I kept it. And, and sure enough, now I get it. I need it. It's amazing. It's got two sides. It's got his kind of playful jazz, straight up, you know, funky blues, derivative keyboard with Africa, strong foundation. And then we have straight up noise on the other side. And um, this record is fucking amazing. Recorded in 1960? That's early early craziness. (laughs) I mean, think about it. 1960. When did uh, the shape of, um, you know, well, anywho, just thinking about different records at that time, I don't know, just very out, very strong record. So, for me, this is also beautifully recorded. You really hear a room that it's in. It's a, it's a soft, it has a softness, but a, a very strong presence at the same time. So this is one of the records that I've had in my collection since I was born. Um, and I still listen to it today very much. Yeah. Do you remember the point at which you started to get it? You mentioned there that you were... 13, 14, and you knew you'd get it eventually, but when did you get it, and what changed in the interim? Well, I'll have to be honest. Um, For me, really understanding, um, and not not that I do it now, but feeling like I can really sit with complexity, uh, you know, isn't something that was easy for me. I had to work on it. Um, I really do come from loving pop culture. And um, I did find early on, though, that that I needed to not be a part of the machismo that I was starting to understand as I was getting into my teens. And so I found myself in, involved with like a kind of the music community that was a little bit more outside and I could go there and not be uh, and be safe basically um, so I, I was really in, invested in um, the punk community of, of Texas at the time which was strong in the 90s we had bands like <clears throat> at the drive-in come out of, of uh, you know El Paso so you know that was a strong period for music in the Texas area so we had bands coming through and we we hosted shows at a place called Einstein's and the kids a little older than me were were really doing good work um, creating a network of people uh, touring through and being able to play spaces so I was starting to understand the complexity from a grassroots perspective of you know people writing their own songs 
I was yet to really understand jazz and really listen in and, and understand it. And so I had people who helped me and guided me. And the first person would be Paul Wesney, who is, you know, a drummer. So, so my first version of being in a duo was with Paul Wesney when we were 15. And we had a band called the Belvedere's. And it was guitar and drums. It was the first version of a Black Spirituals, I guess. And um, he was a deep collector. Like, he, he was on a level that I still don't know if I... I mean, I recognize now, but he, he found it in the middle of nowhere, Texas, in his, you know, teens. How he found that skill to shop for records, I have no idea. But he was a real crate digger and um, so he was teaching me about jazz it was still hard to get and then it was my roommates in Seattle Isaac Mills that would play kind of hold this hostage um, at the, the kitchen table where which was the only common space of the house we lived in and just kind of play records and he was getting me into jazz and and I realized that I loved this music so it took me a minute it was through people kind of sitting me down and making me listen. It was a patience test or experience. And um, long story short, it's, it's about being able to be patient and listen. That's kind of the lesson here is like being able to slow down and listen and not anticipate so much and just be able to to let it hit you and i think that's the the, the vulnerable part of of being in um, of experiencing art is that you have to give yourself to this thing and just do it and learning how to be patient and slow down and listen jazz has helped me do that and now i i need it it's important to have this understanding of time through jazz. This is an important part of my life now. So long story short, um, you, you start to just hear all the beauty and playfulness and the stories and the, the genuine art, um, you know, skill and creativity and the dimension of, of inspiration and, and invention. You know, you can really learn a lot from listening, and jazz does this beautifully. Forms of jazz, black music in general. Um, I think Sun Ra is, <clears throat> this record especially from 1960, I mean, that's still noisier than noise music I'm seeing out here today. Yeah. It's really amazing. It's funny, it's amazing. I can't say enough. This, this, this person is very important. I was, um... Actually, one of the questions that I'd originally written down as I was putting them together without having done any research yet was whether you'd ever seen Sun Ra Orchestra live. And then once I did my research, I realized that you'd gone one step further than that and Black Spirituals actually supported them. Yeah, How true. was that for you? Yep, I tell you what, man. These these guys and gals come up on stage wearing beautiful, 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 beautiful clothing and reading actual music, reading music on stage. I mean, they're they're the real thing. I'll tell you this. We played with them a couple years ago in Santa Cruz. Sound and it's a and it's a jazz club, and the sound person did not know who Sun Ra was, right? And it was embarrassing from from everyone in the room <laughs> because he's trying to he's trying to persuade them to use the the, the electric keyboard and not the piano, and the band is like, <clears throat> dude, if you have a piano, we would prefer the piano. And it kind of made the sound guy um, unhappy. Like, <laughs> and they wouldn't, they wouldn't say no. They were like, look, you have a piano. I know it's going to be a tight stage with all of the band members, but 
you know, that's just what we're going to do. So, they, <laughs> they, <laughs> there's no way they, oh man, I just love it. <laughs> there was no question. There was no question. There was, there's no argument. You know, you're going to make it a piano and not a keyboard. So that, that was dealt with quickly. And, um, what can I say? If, if anyone can turn an uptight, overpriced, strange, new, techie kind of community of Santa Cruz into dancing, you know, crazy, it's, it's the Sun Ra Orchestra. And we, they had everyone just blowing. They would, we were just, it was the most powerful experience to watch them really hold the space. And they played very long, you know, they're, they're really there to, to have fun. Um, and what was neat about this show is that there are people from the band throughout the years who now re reside in the Bay. Um, and so different members came out of the um, woodwork for this show that normally wouldn't play. Wow. So they had a cellist. They had, um, and, and I, bear with me, I don't remember these names. I need to know them off my, I just need to know them. So I'm going to work on that. But um, people that don't usually play because um, they're touring so much came out and played this show. And it was, you know, Marshall Allen, his energy is so strong. We, we smoked a little herb afterwards. And then we all noticed that there was a hot dog stand and we were so excited. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it was they're 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 homies, and they and I feel like they liked what we did because because that was something that's always been interesting. Is black spirituals? If you hear us, we we can open for Sun Ra, and we can open for Earth. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> like who gets to do that? So um, it's very strange, and so you know, for me, I was like, okay. I'm, you know, Marshall's on drums. He's gonna slay as always. I get to turn my volume up loud and explore form. You know, let's just do it. And um, I do remember we didn't play very long, and the band was like, "Y'all, y'all didn't play long." So we did one form and then stopped. Um, maybe 20 minutes, and then they played for like two hours. We weren't, you know, we weren't paid for that show either, so it was, it was really just a very sweet, the, the person who booked it was, was being generous, saying like, you know, we can't pay you, it's, it's just going to be too much money, but we know that there's something else that's currency in this exchange, and they were right. It was just the opportunity to meet everybody. And I felt like the band really wanted us to play longer. They were like, yeah, man, y'all were hitting something. Keep going. <clears throat> so I was a little nervous, I think. Um, and we stopped a little early. But at the same time, people were there to see Sun Ra. You know what I mean? So we did our thing, we stopped, and then Sun Ra played for two hours. It was amazing. So they're still strong. Please, please, please go catch them if, if and when they come to you. I will. Um, what was it like playing for a Sun Ra crowd? I, I mean, you strike me as someone who's right. quite attentive to the energy of the room, I guess, depending on where you are. What was that like? It's great. Um, people loved it. I, yeah, you know, Santa Cruz, it's just, you need to know this. You've got what's called, oh man, ecstatic dance, okay? Just, that's what it is. And uh, we have Burning Man out here, come on. So, um, uh, yeah, we had ecstatic dancers while we played. It was great. Oh, great. People loved it. It was amazing. I wanted to cycle back as well to something you mentioned, which is that both of the albums that you've talked about so far are originally from your father's music collection. 
I mean, it sounds like your parents potentially had quite a profound imprint on your understanding of music, but is that the case? Was it just these isolated records or was that generally true as well? Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, I grew up in Lubbock, Texas. This is um, West Texas in the Panhandle, the rectangular northern section near Oklahoma and New Mexico, and where Buddy Holly, where um, the Flatlanders, Joe Ely, um, where Waylon Jennings, um, where artists like Terry Allen come from. And uh, my parents are artists, so they moved there to teach at the college. And they are artists. And my parents love music. They are visual artists, but they love music. And I grew up in a house that said, you can be an artist and make a living if you want to be. Mm. There's nothing wrong with that. Because I do come across people whose uh, experiences are exact opposite, where people do not understand what it is to feel creative and creativity as a potential career, life goal, and um, where, where they just didn't have that kind of support. So I'm very lucky. My parents recognized I was interested in sound early on and there happened to be a really eccentric, beautiful, powerful person. This would have been my third record, by the way, but she didn't have a record. Um, with my piano teacher, Mary Helen Snow, um, give thanks. Um, she had a grand piano and an ARP analog synthesizer and various digital synths, uh, like a Kurzweil K250 or K, yeah, K250, the first one, first sampler, one of the early samplers, but um, it kind of looks like a Rhodes, feels like a Rhodes, it's a cool synth. So long story short, when I'm seven, eight years old and going to piano lessons, I'm sharing the stage with a piano and an analog synth from pretty pretty young. Um, so that's because my parents knew the community. Like they knew there's this cool woman named Mary Helen who's teaching piano and she's going to be awesome for Zach and Ty, my sister. And other piano students came out of her camp that I love today and still hang out with. Um, so she touched a lot of us, and uh, I'm very, very fortunate to have had her as an early role model. So Mary Helen Snow, um, the one thing that she did kind of leave behind was this really cool book that she wrote on ARP 2600 patches. They're hand-drawn patches and they're her own invented patches and so they have these great names and she describes how to use it and how to patch it and it seems like it might be like a textbook for an art school teaching the art or something you know so I do have a copy of that um, that's important to me I gave it to Sarah Debachi years ago and she um, photoshopped it got a scan of it so that it can be shared with others because there would no one would know about it otherwise, you know. And um, yeah, so that was a big influence on me. So my parents absolutely purchased for me when I was 15 um, my first, you know, synthesizer drum machine, an MMT8, which is a sequencer for MIDI that I use today religiously. And my first guitar, which was um, the Univox, it was stolen last year, but it was this guitar that I brought with me on tour to, to Europe a few times, and yeah, so they bought me that around 15 from one of their graduate students for like 100 bucks, and um, now it had to be more than that, but good price. And uh, then I got to hang out with those same graduate students when I was 15, 16, so they, they taught me how to drink and all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, so 
I have to say, my Lubbock experience, though heavy, was really eclectic and kind of rich. I could have your third and final record, Zachary, and a little bit about why it's important. That would be wonderful. Yes. Now, I need you to help me pronounce it. <laughs> the name of the album? Yeah. Oh, my. Or the composition, really. Yeah. Let's give it a... I mean, I think I'm in the dark as much as you, but I was going to go for Naljolak. I bet my emphasis is all wrong. What would you say? Okay. N-A-L-D-J-O-R-L-A-K. Nicely done. Yeah, I think you're right. So, um, this piece is now um, important to me, although I haven't really listened to it since I saw it live. Um, but it, it, it imprinted into me forever. Um, I think we were privied as Mill students to the premiere. Wow. Of the, the piece. Yeah. And um, I, don't quote me on that, but I have a feeling we were able to hear the first time it was played. And um, it was played by cellist Charles Curtis. Who's um, a, a real critter, as they say. He's down in San Diego, I believe, teaching at U, um, US, UCSD. But he's someone that comes from the minimalism of uh, Lamont Young. So he'll play with Lamont Young in these hyper-tuning systems. And um, so Charles has his own career and his world very sensitive ear. He teams up with um, Elion, and she's known for her 2600, her ARP, her, her ARP synthesizers. And this, I believe, might be her first composition for acoustic instruments. But um, it's, it, it transfers her deep insight and knowledge of sound coming from synthetic experiments onto the cello and that's exactly what we need to be doing right now in the world so um, for me electronic music has never been about taking away nature it's always been about reminding us of nature so she did that real well in this piece and a very important piece for me it was prior to me writing the string quartet which I think at this point is my version of her piece at, at the end of the day, um, trying to uncover the acoustics of things, the, the natural phenomenon of things, and not play notes necessarily, like really get over the note and into the sound. Um, yeah, Leon's one of my favorites, period. What kind of room did you see her in? At the concert hall at Mills. Is that a big room? Yeah, it's a gorgeous room. Mm. Gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful room. Um, it was uh, not renovated by that point, so it's even more lush now. They, <clears throat> they put some money into it, so it's, it sounds different now. But um, at the time, it was the OG version, which is just this very beautiful... Yeah, just beautiful hall. That's a, you know, important hall, Mills College Hall. So that was the first time you heard her music? Um, it might have been, actually, yeah. Hmm. It might have been. Um, 
at that time, I had obviously, not obviously, but um, I had gone down the, I wonder why I learned about, so for me, a big thing was coming into chilling out, writing a lot of notes. And the people that taught me about that were going to be world musics, and then uh, within the Western music world would have been people like, um, you know, James Tinney hmm. and Lamont Young, Elian, and people who were starting to play around with kind of getting inside of a sound and not embellishment and less embellishment and more about like very concentrated clear kind of ideas of um, of, a, of a physical outcome like what it is we want to try and explore like very clear things um, so let's say pendulum music Steve Reich you know you're hearing the slow the slowing of energy over time that's the goal that is the purpose of that piece. And so I was really kind of starting to get into that um, kind of way of thinking about music. And, um, and, then, and then being able to have the opportunity to write pieces and to hear them played, and then going back into the, to the revising of the work to figure out and kind of experience what it is you really were trying to get at. You know, and now I'm starting to drift. And I even forgot the question you asked me. So, long story short, um, everything resonates. And so if you can try and in involve that energy into the happening in, the, in that moment, then more power to you. So yes, I love to go to the place of performance ahead of time to hear it. You know, most times we just get 30-minute sound check. But if I can go and hang out for a couple hours, yes, I might learn something and then and then fine-tune the piece to that, you know, phenomenon. Um, I like to write for my friends. I don't like to write for random people. I need to kind of hang out with you a little bit. And um, so all these things influence the ending piece. Yeah, big time. And that ends up being the currency, is these new friendships and the knowledge you get from the experience. When did you start to think about the experience of performing and collaborating in those terms of acquaintance prior to doing, doing anything? Hmm. Just trial and error. I mean, let me think... Um... I, I think that I'll, I'll come back to the Mills thing again. It's 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 that is the the real thing you learn when you go to college for art is you kind of learn of those things that you prefer. Hopefully, you learn that or don't prefer, and um, you're sitting around with the same group of people for two years, and you 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 work with them. So. So I guess the the answer is um, any time you spend when any time you make an effort to c create a community, you'll learn these types of things. It doesn't have to be school or, but um, in my case, it is. Um, so I think it was in the Mills um, time period that I learned that I, I gravitated towards these people and. And that um, with the right exchange, because they're also giving me their energy to work on my ideas, with the right exchange, it was worth everyone's while. You know, everyone was happy leaving it. So that, that was another part of it, is that people feel that there's an exchange and not um, an, an, an exchange that feels equal or somehow empowered. You know, we want to help each other. We don't not want to help each other, but we don't want to just be helping others. We want to be helping ourselves as well. 
That's a big exchange that happens in music. Um, usually it just comes in the form of a paycheck, but if there's no paycheck, then what is the exchange? And so a lot of that was worked out in these times. And um, the exchange became a friendship, each other's art, what has turned out to be people's whole careers. You know, like a lot of stuff comes out of just good old-fashioned friendship and exchanging um, your energy and helping others do their thing, their ideas. You know, I'm really thankful to all the people that have played my music, spent time listening to my bullshit. <laughs> Man. On the subject of exchange, I mean, I think Elian's music is something that's so wonderful to talk about in those terms because I think my personal acquaintance with her music, the exchange has been partly through both listener and performer being active participants in deriving understanding and meaning from the experience, maybe more so because the gestures are so simple and there's a requirement to, not a requirement, but there's much to be gained from stepping into the experience and effectively walking around it with your ears and, and finding all the detail that you can to dive as deep into that experience as possible. What I find really interesting about that, and this is partly derived from my own experiences playing music, is that I have such admiration for people who have the faith in the audiences to step forward into that experience and to give them from a traditional sense very little to work with but obviously sonically and harmonically there is a wealth of detail there it's just not immediately obvious I mean as someone with your music as well you often work with very minimal elements how easy is it for you to feel that you can have the faith in your audience to step forward into the work and is it easy to to deal with that? To to say, do you know what? I'm going to just present them with a small collection of things and I'm going to allow them to step forward into it. Two images come to mind, um, my solo music right now and then my composed chamber music. I, I think they kind of live in the same world ultimately. One I'm playing, one I'm not. They are trying for the same, same kind of goal. I want to expose phenomenon in real time. And usually, I don't know what it is either. So I'm listening like an audience member. And that's kind of my purpose out here. And I think I make that clear, you know? I call it high vibration resonance. It's, it's just like a thing I'm obsessed with saying, unfortunately. I need to work on that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think for me, it's I'm out here learning at the same time. So, um, for me, the energy of vibration is beautiful, magical, and I love to try and just be present in this, in the listening, because I really, and I notice others too, can kind of enjoy hearing vibrations moving in time and space and we like we can do it we can we're good at it we like to do that so um i just like to throw that kind of chemistry into a space help shape that chemistry into a space and then be a, vis a listener as well so that's why i love working with new tunings which is a big part of my work you know it's i tune to harmonics and those harmonics do things that I love to hear, you know, and I'm always finding new in energy uh, exchanges when I work with new tunings. So I, I really, really, really am feeling like I am a listener when I'm playing myself, you know.
I think this would be a lovely place to to wrap up, Zachary. But if people want to check out your music online, find out what you're doing, connect with you, perhaps, where's the best place for them to go? Mm, right on. Um, I have a long name. ZacharyJamesWatkins.com <laughs> is my website. I, I haven't really been keeping up with it, but it's a cool website. <laughs> um, and then, uh, let's see, Black Spiritual still has a page, you know, we, we're kind of in hiatus at the moment, but we still have our page. And then I would say go to Siege's record label. Um, they put out our records, and Aaron and Faith are, and their new um, Beautiful Child are, um, are doing really wonderful things. So I'd say Siege Records um, as well. It's a great place to go. They're really supportive, so they'll even post about things that we're doing. Well, Zachary, thank you once again, and to everyone listening, I will uh, see you next time. <laughs>